0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Andrew O'Neill. I'm director of uh, the Griffith Asia Institute. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone here this evening, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you for the first Perspectives Asia for uh, 2011. These public seminars were launched in 2005 by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Queensland Art Gallery's Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art to explore issues of contemporary culture, politics and society in our region. Um, And a key theme of Perspectives Asia since 2005 is really exploring Australia's engagement in the Asian region, which in many respects is a case study over time of Australia's uh, engagement with China. While economically, Australia has succeeded in engaging with key parts of the Asian region, in the strategic sphere, there remains some ambivalence and serious cultural and language shortfalls in in understanding persist. Since the 1960s, Australia's views of Asia have evolved from being characterised by hostility and suspicion to being distinguished by a strong desire to engage in the region economically, culturally and politically. This has been reflected in changing societal views uh, of the region as well as evolving perceptions among foreign policy elites. Over the past four decades, the issue for Australia hasn't been whether we should engage with our region, but rather, what form that engagement should take. As Professor Tony Milner observed in the mid-1990s, a frequent hallmark of the debate has been the challenges that Australia, as a predominantly Anglo-Saxon Western liberal democracy, confronts as a country seen by many in the region as an outsider. And of course, uh, in many respects, the same could be said of China's perceptions uh, of Australia. Tonight, our guest Uh, almost certainly has a better understanding of Australia's challenge in relation to China than any academic uh, analyst uh, can provide. Uh, Before I uh, invite Professor Ian O'Connor to to provide us with um, the formal introduction and and welcome for this evening, I'd like to thank uh, our seminar partner, the Australian uh, Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art here at Queensland's Art Gallery, and in particular Sahania Raphael, uh, who is Queensland Art Gallery's uh, Deputy Director for cu- Curatorial and, co- and uh, Collection uh, Development. I'd now like to invite uh, Professor Ian O'Connor, Griffith University's Vice uh, Chancellor and President, to provide the formal introduction uh, to tonight's Perspectives Asia event.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. Dr Jeff Raby, Australia's Ambassador to China. Professor Emeritus Roy Webb, um, AO. Roy is um, my predecessor as Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University and his wife, Heather Webb. Um, the Honourable Larry Anthony, former Federal Minister. Sahania Raphael, Deputy Director of the um, Queensland Art Gallery. Mr. Uh, Professor Michael Powell, the Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Business at Griffith University. Uh, Scott Shepherd, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of International and Development from Queensland University of Technology, John Michelle, the State Director of Queensland for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I'd also like to note that the Premier in particular, Anna Bly, asked for her apologies to be sent and noted tonight. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we gather tonight. I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening's Perspectives Asia Seminar with Australia's Ambassador to China, Dr Jeff Raby. Griffith University has had a long-standing commitment to cultivating good relationships between Australia and its neighbours in Asia. China in particular is a very important partner for Griffith, but of course not just for Griffith, for Australia. It sounds vaguely absurd today that many in Australia were sceptical about China's prospects in the early 1970s when Australia established formal diplomatic relationships with Beijing under the Whitlam government. In a period dominated by the long economic shadows of Japan and the United States, the prevailing orthodoxy in the early to mid-1970s was that China would struggle to overcome its internal challenges and that it would remain a minor commercial partner for Australia. This orthodoxy was forcefully challenged by Australia's inaugural ambassador to the People's Republic of China, Stephen Fitzgerald, and his small analytic team in China. In a series of controversial cablegrams, they predicted that China would emerge as an economic powerhouse and a strategic force to be reckoned with by the turn of the century. It's fair to say that their assessments were greeted with considerable scepticism by their superiors in Canberra at the time. But as they say, Fitzgerald and his team were on the right side of history. For Australia, the growth of the bilateral economic relationships with China is the single most significant development in our engagement with Asia since the end of the Cold War. Today China is Australia's largest two-way trading partner and in in 2009 it became Australia's largest export destination. Now tonight's speaker is extraordinarily well qualified to outline Australia's relations with, with the world's fastest growing economy and Asia's oldest and newest great power. Dr Jeff Raby became Australia's Ambassador to China in May 2007 and is widely recognised as one of Australia's most senior serving foreign officials. Before becoming Ambassador to China, Dr Raby was Deputy Secretary of DFAT from November 2002 to November 2006. He had held a number of very senior positions in the department, including First Assistant Secretary, International Organisations and Legal Division, Ambassador and Permanent Representative to the World Trade Organisation, and first Assistant Secretary, Trade Negotiations Division. He was Australia's first APEC ambassador from November 2002 to December 2004. Between between 1993 and 1995, he was head of the Trade Policy Issues Division of the OECD in Paris, and in 1991, Dr Raby established and headed DFAT's East Asia Analytical Unit. Between 1896... Eight, 1986, it would have been very early on. between 1986 and 1991, he served in Beijing twice as head of the embassy's economic section. He also held positions as trade policy advisor to the Minister for Trade 1993 and an economic analyst in the Office of National Assessment from 84 to 86. And I would note, and I know Scott Shepherd would want me to note that um, Jeff has also been an extraordinary supporter of universities in China and we're enormously grateful for that support, Jeff. So, ladies and gentlemen, please make welcome Dr Jeff Raby.
2: Thank you for that uh, very kind uh, introduction, Ian. Uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm pleased to say so many friends, uh, good evening. I'm delighted to be invited to present this year's Perspectives Asia lecture, in particular because tonight's function brings together two of my passions, China and contemporary Chinese art and and art in general. You may not be aware that I'm a modest collector of contemporary Chinese art and I'm fortunate to count as close friends some of China's celebrated modern painters and sculptors. In fact, uh, last Saturday I had the great uh, honour to go to Shenzhen on my way to Australia to open a new exhibition by my friend Guan Wei. Uh, That exhibition's been heavily supported by the Australian Embassy as part of our very exciting year of Australian culture in China, which we've called Imagine Australia. So I'm a strong believer in the power of art and culture to build bridges between communities that are otherwise very different, such as Australia and China. Cultural diplomacy is something we at the Embassy in Beijing have pursued wholeheartedly and very successfully with China. Last year, Her Excellency, the Governor-General, visited Beijing to open the Year of Australian Culture. And next month, we will see an exciting reciprocal program from China launched in Australia. It will be the year of Chinese culture in Australia. Last month, we hosted the fourth Australian Writers' Week in China, featuring seminars and events involving eight celebrated Australian authors. And just last week, I had the pleasure of accompanying the Australian Prime Minister to a concert for the Meet in Beijing Arts Festival, in which Australian artists and performers uh, the uh, main uh, exhibits this year and in which they are able to exhibit their uh, diverse talents. Of course, culture was just one of the elements of the Prime Minister's visit to China last week which was a very successful visit. Her program covered a range of areas from tourism and tertiary education to resources and investment. The Australia-China relationship has undoubtedly grown from strength to strength over almost four decades of formal diplomatic relations since those days that Ian mentioned when Stephen Fitzgerald first uh, opened an embassy. Trade in resources and commodities has underpinned these links, and China's rapid economic growth and urbanisation will continue to drive ever deeper integration between our two economies. But the bilateral relationship is no longer defined simply by the cycle of supply and demand or exports in one direction. Australia's links with China are becoming increasingly comprehensive based on expanding bilateral trade flows, investment, especially Chinese investment into Australia, and in many ways, most important of all, people-to-people engagement. As China regains its normal historic place in the world as a major economic power, the opportunities for Australia also grow, not only in traditional sectors, but in many new ones as well. Our challenge is to judge accurately the direction of China's growth and foster ties that are deeper, stronger, and richer for our mutual benefit. And these are the principal ideas that I wish to develop uh, in the course of my remarks this evening. Before turning, however, to where I believe the relationship is headed, uh, let me first share a few personal experiences that have shaped my perspective on the Australia-China relationship. I apologise this evening if uh, my comments are... carry an overly heavy weight on economic and trade matters, but economic and trade cooperation has and will continue to be the platform upon which we build the rest of our bilateral relationship. I began my diplomatic career in Beijing at the beginning of 1986 as the first professional economist assigned to an Australian embassy anywhere. Later, I established the first economic section at the Australian embassy in Beijing. In the nature of uh, bureaucracies, Uh, I was originally sent for just one year on a special assignment and through various means and ways and I don't know what decisions lie at the back of it, one year ended up lasting almost five years. During that time, I saw China's economic reform and open door policies become entrenched and the Chinese government struggled to find means to manage a partially reformed economy and one which is still uh, in the process of uh, transformation. Not long after I returned from Beijing, at the invitation of Professor Rosgano, I wrote a chapter for a major book he was uh, editing on the Chinese economic miracle, but it was called uh, Growth Without Miracles. And my chapter was called uh, The Neither This Nor That Economy. It was uh, an article that I published on the course of reform from the beginning in 1978 through to the early 90s. It was clear that the Chinese government was on a steep learning curve as were the handful of analysts globally who actually studied and researched China's macroeconomy in those days. Among foreign analysts, the mood of the times was generally sceptical. I think uh, Ian has mentioned that in the context of uh, Stephen Fitzgerald's early reporting from the uh, early 1970s. But even still, by the uh, late 80s, the mood was still sceptical. And people doubted China's capacity to reform its economy sufficiently to release the inevitable pent-up forces for rapid economic growth and development. The political will was there for sure. The Communist Party was desperate to rebuild the country after the destruction, waste and lost decades of previous policy swings. But how to translate that into policy was the very big question they faced. Within the party, debate raged over how much, how quickly, and in which sectors to wind back central planning? What was to be the balance between directives and incentives? And how to manage the macroeconomy, especially inflation, an issue we're seeing again today confronting China's policy when the planning instruments were being weakened by the spread of the market? In the economic debates in the 1980s, a party elder, Chen Yun, who's the father of today's chairman of the China Development Bank, Mr Chen Yuan, uh, and he was the brains behind China's first five-year plan in the mid-1950s, articulated what became known as the birdcage bird theory. This was the notion that the market was a bird which could have some room to fly, but only with a space well-defined by central planning controls. The more liberal reformers, Hu Bang, Zhao Tsiang and others, wanted a big cage. Chen, a small one, and Deng cleverly shifted his positions as political circumstances demanded. None of the prominent policy people wanted to set the bird free in those days. The partly reformed economy, the neither this nor that economy as I termed it, was notoriously difficult to manage, with administrative edicts blunting more conventional economic policy instruments. The brakes were applied when growth surged and then released just as quickly when the pace of growth slackened. By the late 1980s, inflation had started to take hold but by then political d- divisions within the top of the party muted policy responses. Dissatisfaction over rising inflation prompted heightened public concerns over corruption and lack of official accountability. Echoes of that we hear today again. The crushing of the popular de- demonstrations in Tiananmen Square on the night of June 4th put an end to this period of reform, fast growth and inflation. Throughout those years leading up to that watershed, I had been viewed by colleagues – and I'm glad uh, to be reminded that I was in good company – by fellow economists and the hard heads in Canberra, I was seen as an unbridled optimist with respect to China's capacity to realise its economic growth potential. I felt my views and assessments were well grounded in my knowledge of the Chinese economy and in the amount of travel to various corners in provincial China I was able to do in my job at that time. My sunny outlook was, however, sorely tested by the events of the evening of June 4th and the immediate aftermath, but at no time did I doubt that China's economic reforms and open-door policies would continue. In a speech which was to be given at the Hong Kong Press Club, which I prepared for my ambassador in late 1989, we made our case that China's reforms would continue and that reforms implemented thus far would not be rolled back. This speech received very wide international coverage at the time, and I'm not sure if if it's still the case today, but then the Hong Kong Press Club was a very august venue to be making such a speech. My ambassador, David Sadlier, on return to Beijing, was besieged by his colleagues. Of course, in those days, the Beijing community of foreigners was much smaller than it is today. They were irate that we had the audacity to break with the conventional wisdom that China was retreating into a dark Stalinist corner. Of course, reform measures and experiments continued throughout those years before Deng made his much-publicized trip to Shenzhen in 1992 to again give his imprimatur to the policies of reform and openness. But from 1992, notwithstanding concerns about, at first, China's debt burden, state-owned enterprises, and then China's banking system sagging under a mountain of non-performing loans, and then the country being rent asunder by coastal versus hinterland income inequalities, throughout the 1990s and then, of course, into the first decade of this century, China continued to grow and grow. The consistent theme is that the imperative to grow and, by and large, to make sure the benefits of growth touch all to some extent, is so great that poor policy choices including in action, as we saw after June 4th, when they are made, as inevitably they are at times, are eventually addressed and fixed. This has happened often enough to get the economy to the point we're at today, one which was utterly unimaginable back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Looking back over those years, the irony for me is that no matter how optimistic I may have been China's actual growth performance and all that has come with it in terms of positive social change has far, far exceeded my most optimistic expectations. My experiences have have refined my understanding of just how remarkable China's development has been and where it is headed. In particular, it has sharpened my sense of what this means for Australia. Arguably, no country has benefited more from China's rise than Australia. And no country wants to see China's economic growth sustain more than does Australia. In the past 10 years, two-way trade has increased more than six-fold to around $100 billion last year. China has grown from being our fifth largest trading partner to being our largest trading partner. To put this in some uh, broader context... Our exports to China uh, exceed the combined total of all our exports to our third, fourth and fifth markets, namely the Republic of Korea, India and the United States. Our exports to China accounted uh, last year for around 25% of Australia's total exports. This is a proportion that has not been seen since uh, uh, Japan in the early 1990s. By way of comparison, South Korea uh, sent 23.9% of its exports to China, Japan 19%, the United States 5%, Canada 3.1%, even though it has the same resource endowments as Australia, and the UK a mere 2.8%. One important conclusion from this is that arguably Australia is now more dependent on the China market than any other country on Earth. And this will continue to grow. No country will, will again replace China as Australia's largest export markets while China continues to grow. So in many ways, when we talk about like-minded countries and acting in concert with like-minded countries, it's difficult now and will be increasingly more difficult in future to see quite who those like-minded countries will be in terms of trade. So the adoption just recently of China's 12th five-year plan by China's National People's Congress in March has great importance for Australia, not just for signalling the path of China's intended development over the next five years, but also for informing Australia's engagement with its key trading partner, uh, both now and for the longer term. China's goal for the 12th five-year plan period is to restructure the economy away from today's model of high investment and export-led growth towards a domestic consumption model based on more efficient allocation of resources and with a growing services sector. The leadership's objective, as outlined by Premier Wen Jiabao in his address to the Congress, is to pursue the goal of establishing a moderately prosperous society. Australia has a big role to play in helping China achieve that goal. Currently, China's household consumption as a share of GDP is around 40%. This figure reveals what we all know about China's average consumer. They have low wages, spend little, and save a lot. Most developed countries are the exact opposite. For example, in the United States, household consumption makes up around 80% of GDP. So there is a long way for China's domestic consumption to expand. The planned transition to a domestic consumer-driven economy requires China to do a number of things, all of which will be very difficult and all of which uh, bring with them their own challenges. Some of the things I have in mind include increase the number and change the type of new jobs created, including by creating more opportunities in the services sector, substantially lift wages, appreciate the currency, and put in place efficient social welfare and public education systems. Much of the high savings rate in China derives from people saving against exigencies of ill health and the need to fund education. One means for increasing wages, though, is is, is, is to continue a trend which is well and truly underway, and that is to encourage more rural workers to take up urban residence and employment. This will contribute to raising productivity as workers move from relatively low to relatively high productivity jobs in urban areas. China plans to move a further further 100 million people, or five times Australia's total population, uh, by 2020 into urban areas. And these will join China's ever-growing middle classes. This will continue to to drive demand for new housing, utilities, commercial and social infrastructure, and transport. The most obvious implications of this for Australia is that China's demand for our commodities should continue to rise for some time to come. And just as it has for the past decade, resources will continue to underpin the bilateral trade and investment relationship in decades ahead. While commodities will continue to underpin growth in our trade... China represents enormous opportunities for us to expand into a wider range of other profitable areas. Now, this is beginning to happen, but it can be further enhanced and strengthened by concluding a high-quality and mutually beneficial free trade agreement, and this would deepen the trends that are already underway. The Australian and Chinese economies enjoy strong synergies which mean that a comprehensive, high-quality and beneficial free-trade agreement is in the long-term interest of both countries. Importantly, a free-trade agreement can also provide a foundation for the establishment of a long-term, mutually beneficial investment relationship, providing greater certainty for investors from our two countries. Australia is one of the top destinations for Chinese outbound investment. In fact, I think last year we were the number one destination. In the past three years over 230 chinese applications have been approved with only six requiring additional amendments the total value of this investment is over 60 billion australian dollars and these days that's worth a lot more than 60 billion us dollars china became the second largest source of foreign direct investment applications in australia leaping from sixth position which it previously held these numbers are well known to chinese officials but there nonetheless remains a perception that barriers exist. So an investment framework as part of an FTA could play an important role in clarifying and resolving this issue to both countries' long-term benefit. China's development path over the next 10 years will offer many more opportunities to broaden and deepen our engagement, and it's up to business and government in both countries to realise the opportunities at an early stage. China in the next five years will increasingly export higher quality, value-added products, and will also look to import more sophisticated goods and service uh, sector products, something for which Australia is well-known and well-respected for. It's important to realise that along the east coast of China now, there's very dramatic structural change on the way in manufacturing. As China moves quickly up the value-added chain, And I often point out to people that the two provinces of Jiangsu and Zhejiang, which sit behind Shanghai, now have per capita incomes equivalent to that of the Republic of Korea, South Korea, at the end of the 80s, when Korea hosted the Olympic Games. And yet the populations combined of those two provinces are four times that of South Korea's. On the services story, and this will, as I said, expand with rising income, We have moved to supply China's growing services sector demand. In 2009-10, China became Australia's largest services export market, worth a total of 5.8 billion. In 2010, there were more than 150,000 enrolments by Chinese students in Australia, a world away from the 9,000 Chinese that were studying in Australia just 10 years ago. China has also surpassed the United Kingdom as our most valuable source country for tourism. China's tourist numbers are just behind behind New Zealand, rather. but in terms of yield, that's the spend per capita, multiplied by the number of tourists, China is now our number one uh, source of tourist income. This growth doesn't stem only from China's wealthy eastern seaboard. China's incredible infrastructure expansion is already multiplying the avenues by which Australia can pursue deeper economic cooperation. Take, for example, China's rapid urbanisation. The geography of this urban transition is extremely important to our understanding of China's development and what it may mean for Australia. The heartland of the next phase of growth is not the wealthy eastern seaboard, but inland provinces like Henan, Hubei, Hunan... Most Australians are unfamiliar with these places, but together they represent a combined population of 229 million people and a combined GDP of around 925 billion, roughly the same size as Australia's GDP. And there are many, many more examples. Uh, Shandong province, which most people outside this room would not have heard of, uh, if it were a standalone country, would be Australia's uh, seventh largest trading partner. And similarly, uh, Guangdong would be the fifth largest. Um, So we need to think of China not just concentrated on the eastern seaboard and not concentrated on the main cities, but economic growth and development has now taken off throughout the whole country. The people living in these provinces are also on the move, as demonstrated by the 18 million cars sold last year in China, more than anywhere else in the world. In less than 10 years... China's 175 airports will grow to nearly 250, and 42 new high-speed rail lines are under construction to bring this form of travel to 90% of China's 1.3 billion people. One of my priorities as ambassador has been to foster engagement with decision-makers and business people in each of China's 31 provinces as they negotiate the challenges of their own economic transformation. And I certainly try and direct... Uh, visiting ministers and officials and business people to these, to these areas. Australia can continue to build on its strengths as China looks overseas for assets, technology and resources to meet both energy demand and environmental targets. As China's energy consumption and carbon emissions grow, we are building collaboration on clean coal technology to optimise the use of our primary source of energy and minimise its impact on our communities and the global environment. For example, in 2010, growth in China's natural gas consumption was uh, up 18.5%, which way outstripped that of crude oil, up 12.9%, and especially of coal, which rose by only 5.3%. As new projects, including in Queensland's flourishing coal seam gas sector, come online, Australia is well placed to supply China's expanding LNG market. Over the past two years, China's top three oil and gas companies have in turn struck record-breaking long-term contracts with gas projects, providing jobs for thousands of Queenslanders and certainty for the state's economic development. Clean growth is a principal objective of the new 12th five-year plan, and the plan contains only two mandatory targets, and they both uh, deal with um, uh, uh, clean issues, green issues, Uh, One is a 17% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions uh, per unit of GDP and the other one is a 16% reduction in energy intensity uh, per uh, per unit of GDP over the course of the next five years. And over the period 2005 to 2020, China plans to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions as a a percentage of um, uh, per unit of GDP output by 40 to 45%. In in, in the other direction, uh, what we take from China, the expansion of Australia's mining industry and the corresponding increase in demand for mining equipment and infrastructure is helping to put China's heavy heavy industrial manufacturers on the world map. And this is part of the story of the very rapid structural change that's going on in China's industries at present, away from labour-intensive low-value-added manufacturing to higher-value-added manufacturing and Australia is playing a very key role in this, particularly through our mining and energy sectors. All of Australia's major mining companies source mining, processing and infrastructure equipment from China. This market is worth billions of dollars in total and is growing strongly. Rio Tinto, for example, completed an order for 2,500 rail cars from the Chichiha Rail Company in 2009. This order was one of Rio Tinto's largest from any market. And Fortescue Metals Group purchased iron stacking equipment from the Dalian Heavy Metals Company and rail steel from Ansteel Anst- to service the heaviest haul railway line in the world. For the BG, uh, BG Senok, so BG PetroChina gas project here in Queensland, uh, all 400 kilometres of uh, special high-quality steel pipe for the gas fields will be made at Baosteel in Shanghai. And last uh, December, in the middle of winter, I went to the freezing northeast to the Chichihar Rail Company to view at minus 25 degrees at lunchtime the two new trucks that are being built there for BHP Billington and and Fortescue Mining. These will be the heaviest haul uh, iron ore rail trucks in the world. So, look, I think I've said enough to give you a sense and a feel of the dynamism of the relationship Um, But it's a relationship which is rapidly becoming more diverse and complicated that has many, many layers uh, to it and which presents Australia with enormous opportunities. Of course, China also presents many challenges for Australia. Here we have our single largest economic partner and the one that will be the largest economic partner for as far as anyone can see. And yet we have very different uh, systems of social and political organisation, and very different values. When China was smaller and more insular back in the days of Stephen Fitzgerald or even back in my days in the 80s, these things mattered much less. But today we do not have an option other than to fully engage with China, which means to fully understand China and to help China fully understand us. So this engagement needs to be at all levels and importantly I believe that we neglect the people-to-people links and the cultural dimensions of the relationship to our peril. Similarly, we cannot afford to take China for granted. The world has beaten a path to China's door. The world is there. Everyone has figured it out. Um, We cannot assume because our resources and energy underpin our relationship that everything will uh, just develop smoothly. And we must make sure that, given the tremendous advantages we have, we don't waste them and fail to realise the full dimension of the potential of the relationship. So we need to think today very hard about what China will look like in 10 or 15 years. Very soon, maybe in two to three years, China will be a 1 billion tonne per annum steel manufacturer. The world has never seen anything of this scale. But today I know that the captains of the steel industry in China and the officials who worry about these things are already planning what this 1 billion ton plus industry will look like in 10 or 15 years. And you don't restructure an industry of that scale in a matter of years. So today is the time we in Australia should really be thinking hard about what China will look like in 10 or 15 years. We also need to develop the necessary skills for this in government and business and especially in the academies. At Griffith University's Asia Institute is part of this, an important part of this very necessary and urgent task. Thank you all very much.
3: This is always the pleasurable part of the evening, really, for all of us, because it's my job to say thank you. Um, But what also I get from all of these lectures, and we've had a number really looking at China over the last five years, um, is how interesting it is to hear these different opinions, but how Australia has always been in the front of being um, interested in a relationship with China, however difficult that might have been. Um, The gallery, I know, has participated in that via being interested in contemporary Chinese art. We have one of the best collections here at this gallery of that material, and we have been in discussion with a number of artists um, since the early 90s, really. And so it is really interesting to hear your opinion about how and that history of that relationship and to, it underscores the fact that Australia has always valued that relationship. I guess the other thing to say is that um, I, I, know, I hear what you say about you know, the general bulk of pu- uh, the public in China and how they relate in terms to aspects of what I think one of our questions was about the notion of democracy. And in general, people, I, I agree. I mean, I've been to China many times and seen that, that over the last 20 years the rise in the standard of living across uh, a num- you know, people's lives. But I still think that there is a way to go in terms of human rights and, and certainly when we work with artists they are uh, a group of individuals who have a public personality and presence and um, one cannot ignore Ai Weiwei at this moment who is um, under arrest, and he is an artist who has been using the internet. One of those 420 million uh, blogging, and to think about um, how he—I mean—and sh- he is an artist who has lived through the Cultural Revolution. His um, his actions are informed; they're not in this, in at all naive. But I think um, it's it's. It's interesting and important that artists like that are doing that kind of action. But also, I think in the long run, it'll be be China's response. It'll be interesting to see how China will respond to people like Weiwei. And really, the the others that have been taken have been lawyers, people who are interested in um, the law of of China. So I think there is still a, a way to go. But we are interested in hearing that bigger picture and I think these lectures give us that opportunity to hear Australia's perspective and involvement in that because I think it's really important and we have participated in that in our little way here at the gallery but it's great to hear that bigger picture the economic the trade and all of that that sits behind it so thank you Jeff for your talk you thank you.
1: for more Griffith University podcasts go to www.griffith.edu.au
3: forward slash podcasts.